0: Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 12th of March 2023, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series Parables in Luke The Lost Sheep, Coin and Son. Well, I wonder whether you have ever had that experience of being kept awake late at night by a party going on. Perhaps the party has happened next door, perhaps it's happening nearby but there's music blaring out, there's loud voices, there's laughter, there's flashing lights, and so on. It can be really annoying, can't it? Particularly if we're trying to do what that lady there is trying to do, we're trying to sleep. Or perhaps if we've got young children or grandchildren that we're trying to get off to sleep. But of course in that situation, a clash of perspectives is going on, isn't it? those having the party have got, in their view, a really good reason to celebrate. Perhaps it's a special birthday. Perhaps it's an anniversary. Perhaps it's even a wedding. Those who don't know the reason for the party, or perhaps they do know but they don't care, they can feel the precise opposite, can't they? And particularly if that party goes on and on and on, they can really resent that it's happening. And what we see in this chapter of Luke's Gospel that we're looking at this morning, particularly in the introduction to these three parables that Jesus tells, is very similar. A clash of perspectives about celebration. You see, Jesus is doing one of the things that he commonly did. He's hanging out with those outside the boundaries of normal, respectable society. Jesus, at the start of this story, is hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, who were these people? Well, tax collectors. They're not popular at any time, are they? None of us really love tax collectors, do we, at any time. But tax collectors in the first century, they were the worst form of traitors. They were Jews who'd chosen to work for the hated Romans. And in most cases, they'd grown wealthy off the back of others' oppression and misery. So that's the tax collectors. But who were the sinners? Well, that's basically a euphemism for prostitutes. Those once again who were seen as making money in the worst possible way. And Jesus not only spent time with these people, he not only engaged with them a little bit, Jesus ate with them. Jesus showed the ultimate sign in that culture of friendship and acceptance with these very people who were beyond the pale in the most obvious sense. And it really annoyed those who were watching in, particularly the religious people, particularly the respectable people, particularly those whose lives were marked out by a determination to God, obey God in every way possible. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It really, really annoyed them. The whole thing about being holy, the Pharisees believed, was staying separate from those whose conduct was so deeply disloyal to God. And by spending time with these tax collectors and sinners, and by eating with them, Jesus was, in the Pharisees' view, giving the impression that immoral behaviour didn't matter, that God's holy law didn't matter, And in the process, Jesus himself, in their view, was being deeply disloyal to the God of Israel. Now, what do you do when you've got people trapped in a totally different mindset to you? What do you do when you've got people trapped within a certain narrative that they're completely fixed within and they can't see it any other way? Well, Jesus' approach was to tell parables. Parables. Jesus' approach was to tell these stories where people, because it was a story, couldn't avoid listening, and where they wouldn't know where that story was going, until the point where the point that they were meant to be challenged by suddenly jumps up and hits them straight between the eyes. That's why Jesus tells parables. They're to subvert and challenge the narratives that people were stuck with And in this series, we're looking at parables from Luke's Gospel, aren't we? Jesus tells a load of parables as he approaches Jerusalem, uh, so it's appropriate before Easter that we're having this series. And in chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables. The last one's the really famous one. The others two are quite well known as well. Jesus tells three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And in each case, they're presenting a completely different perspective on his celebration with tax collectors and sinners. The celebration that was so annoying and indeed scandalous to those Pharisees and teachers of the law. So first of all, Jesus asked the Pharisees to imagine that they're a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. And that shepherd loses one of them. Now it's possible that some of these Pharisees were also shepherds. But actually it's pretty unlikely. So Jesus is asking them to use a bit of imagination. He's asking them to put themselves in someone else's situation. And Jesus then paints a picture of an utterly committed shepherd, doing everything possible to find that one sheep which is lost. And when that shepherd finds that one sheep that's lost, he shows utter and complete joy And he then has a massive celebration, a noisy celebration, no doubt, with all of his friends and neighbors. Now, that would have been a fairly alien picture to those Pharisees. It's asking themselves to put themselves in a situation that would have been totally different from them. But for people who knew their Bibles, and that, of course, included the Pharisees, there would have been a certain amount of resonance here. A resonance with Psalm 23 and its depiction of God being like a shepherd. That would have been an obvious resonance with those listening. And so through this first parable, in this set of three, those Pharisees aren't just being asked to put themselves in the position of a shepherd, utterly committed to one sheep, a rather alien concept for them, but they're also asked to recognise... God being utterly committed in the same way to just one lost person. Jesus, through this story, puts these Pharisees in a a position of having to imagine themselves in a completely different situation, but it's to show how different they are from God. That's reinforced by the punchline. Jesus says this at the end of this first parable of three. He says, I tell you, in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. So what Jesus is doing here is first asking them to imagine themselves as a shepherd, strange enough for them to imagine, but utterly committed to just one sheep that's lost. It's a way of showing them how different they are from God. Because the sting in the tail is that last bit. The bit about repentance. Repentance means turning your life around. And Jesus is making it clear here that the Pharisees don't get this understanding of God that he's presented to them. Because deep down, they don't think that there's anything they need to repent from. That's why they don't get it. It's not just that they weren't shepherds. It's that they don't get this basic picture about God. And the truth is, the only way that we appreciate God's love for others is when we're conscious of having received that love ourselves. See, very often we can get stuck in having quite a stern, quite a forbidding understanding of God. Sometimes it's because that's the sort of father or mother figure that we've had. Maybe that some of us have grown up with someone who perhaps did love us but found it difficult to express that, it was someone who was difficult perhaps for us to please, or perhaps we never quite had the closeness that we wanted. Now there are other sources that can produce a distorted understanding of God as well, that's not the only one, but whatever its cause Many people can have an understanding of God as remote and forbidding, and that then makes God's grace and his love for those who've messed up spectacularly rather inexplicable. This parable is saying to the Pharisees, and perhaps to us as well, if you respond in that way to people who've messed up, finding Jesus or being found by him, if you, if you sort of instantly are a bit repelled by that, then you really don't get God and his love, or certainly as much as you need to. And Jesus follows this up with another rather alien picture. This time it's of a woman. Now, none of the Pharisees were women, and most of them were fairly wealthy. And so again, they're put in an alien position of someone looking from the outside at this story of a woman losing one of her silver coins. And she's distressed, as that picture shows. And she turns the whole house upside down, trying to find it, undoubtedly getting out her broom and looking everywhere. And eventually, you'll know the story, she finds it. And once again, what does she do? Well, it's spectacularly over the top, isn't it? She has a massive celebration with her friends and her neighbours, as a result. Just like the shepherd in that first story calling his friends and neighbours in for a party after he finds his sheep, it is deliberately over the top in order to make its point. Jesus says these words, In the same way I tell you, there's more rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The Pharisees would have been really bewildered at these spectacular parties taking place over one sheep being found, one silver coin being found. But that's just the point. Jesus is saying, no, you don't get this picture. It's completely alien to you Pharisees. And in almost every way, you don't get God as well. The truth is, and the truth that this chapter is revealing, is that how we understand God is everything. Everything really flows from the understanding that we have of God. And that's the way into the third story here, the most famous one, where Jesus tells the story of the lost son. Now, when I was a kid, it wasn't called the lost son. It tended to be called the parable of the prodigal son, which means wasteful. And of course, it is the story of a younger son, who asked for his share of his father's estate in advance of his father's death, something rather scandalous, and he promptly goes off and he squanders the lot, doesn't he, in what we're told is wild living. And once again, it's a story where every part of the depiction of this son couldn't have been more alien to the Pharisees with their strict code of behaviour. It's the very last thing that any of them would have done And yet, because they knew their Bibles, as I said earlier, they'd have known as they listened to this story that it had lots of resonance with the stories throughout the Old Testament of God's people going away and coming back again. So there's more than a few echoes in this story of the story of Jacob and David and eventually the whole nation of Israel going away through exile. I think we've got some pictures of this. There they are through their disobedience, having to go away from their homeland for a time before returning and being restored by God. So while they wouldn't have been able to relate to that younger son in any obvious sense, these resonances with the story of Israel would have been enough to make the Pharisees think and perhaps to feel slightly uncomfortable. And this discomfort would have increased with the depiction of the father. The younger son in the story, having squandered his wealth in that far-off country, ends up in desperate straits, doesn't he? He's even tempted to fill himself with the food of the unclean pigs that he's tending. So he decides that he'll return home. And he'll offer himself to his father as a hired servant. That's the best that he thinks he can expect. But of course we know what happens. His father, seeing him coming, rushes out to meet him, doesn't he? He throws his arms around him, he kisses him, and he basically treats him like royalty. And once again, he throws a massive party, a massive celebration to celebrate his return. And once again, Jesus is presenting those Pharisees with a totally alien picture of God. You see, the Pharisee's God was a God who demanded obedience and who, if you failed, was angry with you. There might be a way back, but it was a long and arduous one of dutiful service. The God of this parable is totally different, isn't he? He's a God of relationship. He's a God who allows us the freedom to make our own decisions, good or bad, because he wants a relationship of love with us. The God of this parable is one who is utterly grieved when we take the wrong decisions. Of course he is. But it's not because of some arbitrary set of standards that he has, but because of the way that those decisions damage us. But like the good shepherd, like the woman with the ten silver coins, supremely like the good father in this parable, he's a God who's constantly looking for us. And ready to throw the most enormous party when we return to him. Not welcoming us back as a servant, but as a dearly loved daughter or son. But is that our picture of God? Very often it can be a picture that we're rather resistant to. Because it's one that says that none of our achievements, none of our status can make any difference at all to our standing before God because it is totally dependent upon his grace that's the reason why sometimes people whose lives have contained terrible disasters dreadful things that have gone wrong can sometimes appreciate God's grace more than those who've lived respectable lives now of course the reality is that none of us are respectable are we None of us here are righteous through our own actions. But if we're either stuck in that way of thinking, or perhaps more likely stuck in that form of presentation towards others, if that's the image that we really want to put out to those who are around us, then we'll find it really difficult, as those Pharisees did, to recognize, let alone reflect, God's wonderful grace. Because having presented a series of alien figures to those Pharisees and teachers of the law as a way of bringing home to them how little they understand God, Jesus very suddenly, and at the tail end of this chapter of parables, reveals someone who is just like them. This is the sting in the tale, the part of the story that now they're listening suddenly jumps up and hits them right between the eyes. Because the prodigal son has an older brother, doesn't he? An older brother who has stayed at home with his father. Here he is. And hearing the noise from the house as he comes in from the field, undoubtedly working for his father, he grabs the servant and asks them what's happening. And the servant tells him about his brother's return and how his father has killed the fattened calf to celebrate his brother's return. And just like those Pharisees at the start of the chapter, he's really put out, isn't he? He's really annoyed. In fact, he's furious. And he refuses to go into the house to be with his father and his brother and those celebrating his brother's return. So the father has to come out of the house and plead with that older son. And the older son speaks about all the years that he's worked for his father and not received anything back in return while his dreadful younger brother has come home to this rapturous reception. He's full of resentment and anger, isn't he? Now, it's quite common down the years, I've found, to hear people expressing their sympathy for the older brother, especially if they are an older brother or sister who's had a wayward younger sibling. Put up your hand if you come into that category at all. (laughs) No-one's prepared to drop their younger sibling in it. But if that is our response, then it's quite a warning sign. It's a warning sign that we need to understand God's grace quite a bit more. Because the truth is that that older brother's response shows everything about where his heart was. That older brother's response shows that all those years that he served his father wasn't really motivated by love so much as what he expected to get from his investment, what he expected to get from his father in return. If that older brother had truly loved his father and had truly stayed with him and worked for him out of love, he wouldn't have been filled with resentment about his brother being welcomed home. And if we've truly received God's grace, then we welcome that grace when we see it elsewhere. If we've truly received God's grace in our life, then we welcome that grace when we see it being received by others, and what's more, we're able to embody it and show it ourselves. Because the irony at the end of this parable is that we've got the situation of the two brothers reversed. The younger brother who ran away is now in the house with the father, isn't he? While the older brother is outside of the house and refusing to come in. And that, this parable is saying to those Pharisees and teachers of the law with a massive sting in this tale, is precisely where they stand. They are standing outside of the house, refusing to come in because of those who are receiving grace. They're in a really dangerous and desperate situation. They're rejecting God's grace because of those others who are receiving it. They're prepared to allow their resentment and their annoyance and their fury to even keep them back from being within the house with the loving Father. It's got a real challenge, this story. It reels us in, doesn't it? We follow it, we follow it, and then suddenly that sting is right at the end. And the parable ends very uncertainly. The parable ends with us uncertain about what that older son's going to do. If you've ever seen dramatizations of this parable, then quite often the father appeals to the older son and the older son shrugs his shoulders and gets led into the house. But we don't know that that happens. The story ends without us knowing how it ends, and that's just its point, because it's presenting a choice to us about how we respond when God's grace is being received by those outside of respectable society. See, the challenge to us as a church is very considerable from this parable, particularly the sort of church that we're now setting out to be. Because particularly if, like me, you've been a Christian or a churchgoer for some years, I have all my life, there's a real challenge in the end of this story to us. It's essentially the same challenge as the famous story of Jonah in the Old Testament. Do we want our God to be a God of grace? Do we want the God that we worship to be one who welcomes sinners? Do we want him to be a God who welcomes no holds barred those who've really messed up? Do we want a God who wants to shower people with his grace? Now, in theory, I think we'd all say yes to that question, wouldn't we? But the acid test of whether we really believe this, is our response, our reaction, when we see that grace occurring. See, one of the things we're trying to do a great deal at Christ Church is to welcome as many people as possible with God's love. Now, we most obviously try and do that through our lunch club, Grapevine. But actually, that's what we're trying to do with our cinema clubs. There are four of them now. That's what we're trying to do with our toddler groups. Thursday mornings, but also Men Behaving Dadly. Yesterday morning we had, uh, I think it was 32 dads and 38 children there. We're trying to do that in both of our morning services. Very obviously 9.30, where a lot of people come with no church background at all, but also to this 11 o'clock service. We have regular people joining us, and we thank God for every single one of you. A grapevine we have a prayer time after the lunch. Around about 12 to 14 regularly come in. They include Jill, who's here this morning. Mary comes in for prayer as well sometimes. And it's great. By God's grace, grapevine is having a real impact. Because those who come to that, that's just one example, they know they're loved. They know they're valued. They know they're being welcomed with open arms in To this community. Now, the same, I hope, happens to those coming to our services and to our other groups as well. But the challenge to those of us, including me, who've been here longer, is that we're called to be part of celebrating that reception of grace and embodying it ourselves. We are challenged in precisely the same way as that older brother is challenged. And if we resent it, either to a large or small degree, you know, these Johnny-come-latelys coming into our church and, you know, receiving biscuits and coffee and a a great big lunch and so on, if there's any part of us that either resents it or just feels a little bit fed up about it, it is probably an indication, in fact, I'd say it's certainly an indication, that we need to recognise and receive more of God's grace than we're currently doing. But the thing is, this chapter doesn't just end with a stern warning. It ends with words of affirmation as well. We need to recognise this. The elder son is deeply loved by the father. He's not just given a ticking off and a challenge, pull yourself together and welcome back your younger brother. He is given a very strong reflection of God's utter love for him and his appeal to on that basis and we're going to have the words up now here they are if we feel that we struggle a bit with welcoming those who have been traditionally outside of respectable society certainly outside of the church we need to hear this message because it's not just a message as I say challenging us It's a message that does contain challenge but alongside a deep affirmation of God's love for every single one of us. The father says to the older son, he says, my son, my daughter, he could say, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So the challenge to every single one of us is to recognize that we are recipients of God's wonderful, amazing, fantastic grace. Every single one of us, if we're a member of the body of Christ, have been saved by God's grace, by God's utter forgiving love and mercy. We know that. We know it's not through things we've done, that we've amassed enough merit for God to forgive us. The Reformation taught us that. But when we've really received God's grace, we're able to welcome it being received by others. We're able to see other people receiving God's grace and we're able to rejoice because that's what God and the angels do in heaven. And what's more, we're able to embody it. And this is the calling of the church. We're meant to so be swept up in God's grace that it becomes part of us, that we, we display it. You know, God can show his grace to people totally independently of the church, which is just as well, given that we're often not very good at doing that. But God's preferred way of working is to work through his people. The idea is that he calls us to receive his grace and then embody it. And when people come over the door into Christ Church, if they can be met with a massive welcome, it doesn't have to be loud and noisy, it can be quiet, that's what a lot of people want, actually. They don't want the noisy vicar, they want quieter, more thoughtful people welcoming them. And that's what we can do. And there's a particular challenge for 11 o'clock because 11 o'clock on the first Sunday of the month has grapevine people pouring in with 11 o'clock people either there or sort of on their way to leaving. It's a wonderful opportunity actually for us to display God's grace. God gives us that opportunity uh, once a month. A lot of churches aren't presented with that opportunity but uh, not because it's anything we particularly plan to work that way. It's just an outcome God has provided this opportunity for us to be vessels of God's grace, to be part of this welcome. The first Sunday of the month, quite often, members of Grapevine come into the 11 o'clock service and worship with us, which is fantastic. Let's make sure they feel really welcome, because it's part of the calling that God's given us. So these parables are deeply challenging... And ultimately the biggest thing they present us with is whether we really have got the nature of the God that we worship. And if a God of grace, a God of forgiveness, a God of total love does feel a rather alien picture to you, then we need to open our hearts before that God and be grateful and receive his love and ask that love to transform us. So I'm going to do that now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have found us, you've sought us and saved us and made us your precious children. We thank you for your enormous love. That no matter how many times we've messed up, how stubborn we sometimes are, despite the worst things we've done, because of Jesus, you accept us and you love us and you forgive us and you make us your children. Father God, would your grace so take hold of our hearts, and our minds, and our souls, that we not only recognise and celebrate that grace happening in other places and to other people, but we embody that grace as well. Would you keep us away from being like that older son, resentful, at the return of his younger brother? Would you help us to be people so conscious that your grace has found us, that we embody that grace ourselves, so that more people can experience your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.